Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A major link in the supply chain may break in less than 36 hours. The lead starts right now. The White House steps in as freight rail workers threaten to strike. The contingency plans under discussion as President Biden weighs using federal authority to intervene. Plus, power and interference. I'll speak with the former Trump-appointed U.S. attorney who describes the Justice Department corruptly pressuring how and whether he prosecuted cases related to Trump and Trump's rivals and... He maintained his innocence for 23 years, and now prosecutors say he deserves a new trial after the popular Serial podcast raised doubts about DNA evidence in the case. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. It could be the first in 30 years. A freight rail strike looming closer could begin as soon as Friday morning. About 60,000 workers are set to walk off the job if unions and management fail to come to an agreement in the next day and a half. The consequences from this could be, frankly, economically devastating. Gas prices, which have been drastically falling from their summer peak, could once again skyrocket if trains carrying fuel stop moving. Harvested crops could be prevented from reaching food factories, stopping staples from reaching grocery stores. Amtrak is already canceling almost all of its long-distance passenger trains starting tomorrow as most of their routes run on freight tracks, disrupting travel across parts of the United States. And even your holiday shopping could be at risk. The National Retail Federation saying that the rail strike could prevent stores from stocking up on goods ahead of the holiday rush. We're going to start our coverage today with CNN's Pete Montine, who is tracking the -the down-to-the-wire negotiations between the union's and rail management companies, and the one detail that both sides cannot seem to agree upon. It is the latest effort to put the brakes on a possible rail worker strike that could deal a major blow to the economy. Wednesday, bosses representing unions and railroads met with the labor secretary in a last-ditch effort to reach a deal by midnight Thursday. That's when 60,000 workers could walk off the job in solidarity with train engineers fighting for sick time. A strike will mean freight rail, which makes up 40% of all freight in the U.S., will grind to a halt, impacting everything from parts for cars to fertilizer for farming. Transportation is a big part of the, the cost of, to the consumer, and I don't believe there's one person in the country that it won't affect. Starting Thursday, some railroads will stop accepting shipments of grain, critical to feed livestock and potentially further driving up costs at supermarkets. Rail passengers will be impacted, too. Amtrak is canceling all of its long-distance routes outside of the Northeast Corridor. In Chicago, 9 of 11 commuter lines will stop when a strike begins. I've been commuting from the suburbs to Chicago now for 
Um, over 30 years, I can never remember this happening. Could take two hours if I'm driving. On, on train, it's 40 minutes. With midterm elections on the horizon, the pressure is on the Biden administration to reach a resolution. The president himself has called unions and employers, pushing them to resolve their differences. If a freight rail shutdown does happen, trucking companies say they cannot pick up the slack. It starts with a very small impact, but it grows geometrically. The impacts here far and wide, Jake. One more impact that water treatment facilities are warning they might not be able to get chlorine critical to cleaning water. It is often sent by rail. The interesting byproduct here, Jake, there could be boil water advisories nationwide if there is a freight rail shutdown. All right, Pete Montine, thanks so much. As Pete noted, railroad and union officials were summoned to Washington, D.C. today to meet with the Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh. This comes as the Biden administration is working overtime to prevent a strike. Let's bring in CNN's M.J. Lee, who covers the White House for us. M.J., this meeting still ongoing after several hours of negotiations. What do we know about where things stand right now? Yeah, Jake, while President Biden has been spending the day here at the Detroit Auto Show, we know that the White House has been very closely monitoring these ongoing talks, uh, and these talks do appear to still be ongoing. Uh, we know that union and railroad officials have been meeting with Marty Walsh, uh, the labor secretary, and that meeting has been ongoing for hours. And in the last hour or so, a White House official gave me an update that those talks are still happening in good faith. Now, the president himself in recent days has also gotten involved directly picking up the phone and calling some of these parties to try to get them past this impasse. And the goal, of course, is to avert a strike because White House officials know very well how economically damaging uh, all of this could be. But that having been said, uh, we are told by a White House official that they are still working on contingency plans, including figuring out other methods of potential transportation to get some of these goods moving and also to try to figure out and isolate what kinds of commodities would be most severely hit. So they are planning for all possibilities, but very much still hoping that something will come to a deal. MJ, I don't need to tell you this, but the railroads work under a unique labor law, which allows the federal government to intervene to prevent a strike. They, they can impose temporary regulations while continuing negotiations with the unions. Are, are you hearing any word uh, that anyone in the government is considering this? Yeah, you know, the short answer for now seems to be that Congress is not very interested in uh, intervening. Uh, just take uh, a, a note of the fact that yesterday, uh, Senator Dick Durbin told our colleague Ali Zazov on Capitol Hill, uh, he said, I don't think it's likely that we will intervene. Uh, what he basically said was that he thinks it is up to the different parties to get to the negotiating table and figure out a deal on their own. And also House Speaker Nancy Pelosi just today uh, telling reporters, I'd rather see the negotiations prevail so that Congress doesn't have to act. So all indications right now, at least for the time being, is that there's little appetite on Capitol Hill for them to actually have to intervene. But again, uh, these events are so fluid. These talks are still ongoing. So we don't know exactly what's going to happen. But just important to emphasize again, there's little appetite on Capitol Hill right now for lawmakers to get involved and intervene. All right, MJ Lee, thanks so much. The U.S. rail strike could cost the country tens of millions of dollars every day. What is that going to mean for the U.S. economy? CNN's Rahel Solomon joins us now in studio. And Rahel, you just spoke with a top economic analyst who said he briefed Congress today 
on the potential impacts, what did he have to say? Yeah, Mark Zandi from Moody's Analytics, who told me within the hour that this would massively complicate things for the Fed. Because think about where we're coming from, right? We just had that massive supply shock from the pandemic, which we are still sort of trying to get out from. We had the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which has still sort of hampered supply chains. And this would be the third supply shock. So this would make the Fed's job, which is already difficult, much harder. In terms of us consumers, it would mean shortages of products, perhaps. Not in the near term necessarily, but as the weeks go on, that's what that would mean in the long term. It would mean perhaps higher inflation as supply uh, is outstripped by demand. Mark Sandy put it to me this way. Look, if this goes on for two to three weeks or certainly longer, then it becomes a macroeconomic issue. Then I think it starts affecting activity and manufacturing and the agriculture sector and construction, transportation, distribution more broadly. It just becomes a real mess. And that mess and that potential impact is why you're hearing from so many stakeholders about the potential impact of this. So it could have an impact to us consumers in terms of shortages of goods, grocery stores. Think about also the automotive industry. It impacts not just the finished products, the cars, but their supplies, their goods, their parts, which they've already been dealing with the supply chain issue. Part of the reason cars are so expensive right now. So it just complicates what's already a pretty complicating and troubling situation. All right, Rahel Solomon, thank you so much. Appreciate it. His book led the U.S. Senate to launch an investigation. In a couple minutes, you should hear from the former U.S. attorney who says the Justice Department interfered in his cases that involved then-President Trump. He'll join me next. Plus, scores of people lining up for miles to see the Queen's coffin as officials now estimate the crowds are unlike anything they have ever before seen. Stay with us. And we're back with our politics lead. Justice Department prosecutors are now examining nearly every aspect of former President Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. That's according to sources and new subpoenas showing the investigation includes the fraudulent electors plot, the effort to push baseless fraud claims, and how both were funded. But there are no public indications at this point that this investigation is overlapping with the other federal probe into Trump's handling of classified documents. Joining us now to discuss is former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Jeffrey Berman. He's now a partner at Freed Frank and the author of the brand new book, Holding the Line, Inside the Nation's Preeminent U.S. Attorney's Office and its Battle with the Trump Justice Department. Thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having so, me. So first of all, just so people know, you're not like a, a, a knee-jerk never-Trumper. You, you are... A lifelong Republican? No, I just want, I want to make sure people know where you're coming from. You voted for Trump in 2016. You worked on his campaign. You worked on the transition. But um, this book paints a very damning picture of what it was like to work uh, for uh, the Trump administration. You have recently suggested charges against Trump in the classified documents case, how he mishandled those documents, would be justified in your view. Do you think Attorney General Garland will charge the former well, president? What, what I... What I struck me as as dramatic revelation in that area was uh, not only was uh, Donald Trump and the people around him being investigated for the mishandling of classified documents, they were being investigated uh, for obstruction of a subpoena requiring the production of those documents. And what I said was that is an extremely serious offense. If that offense was being investigated in the Southern District of New York, it would have our highest priority, and we would want to move very, very quickly. And as you can see, the recent filings by the, the, you know, uh, the Department of Justice in that case indicate they want to move fast, and, and I can understand it, and I think it's justified. And do you think that, based on what you've seen, they intend to charge 
Donald Trump with something? You know, when I was U.S. attorney, it always frustrated me when people from the outside would venture uh, opinions and comments about, you know, cases where they didn't know the facts or they only had a small sliver of the facts. And so I don't want to speculate about that here. Just to say that the charges that are being investigated are about as serious as they can be. So it's not the way that you've heard some Republican senators and others describe it as just a paperwork error or storage issue. Obstruction of justice is one of the most serious crimes that come before any U.S. attorney's office. And I'm sure it's been given you know, really serious attention at the Department of Justice. One of the most horrifying stories in your book comes after you had indicted two allies of President Trump for various crimes, Republican Congressman Chris Collins of New York for insider trading and former Trump fixer uh, Michael Cohen, who ultimately went to prison. Uh, your office then got a call from the main Justice Department. You're here in New York. Uh, and they told you it was time to even the score. That's what somebody told your deputy, Rob Kazami. You detail a, a really corrupt administration. What do you say to somebody out there who, who hears about this and said, says, um, why didn't you share this information with the public before November 2020? It's relevant to, to people. Well, you know, there are rules, uh, regulations and laws prohibiting uh, Department of Justice employees and former employees from going public with information about the cases they're working on or conversations with uh, employees. And so what we did is, and what I did, is I made sure that the Southern District of New York always acted with integrity and thoroughness and that we were not in any way impeded in pursuing justice. Every time there was an attempt to uh, politically interfere with our office, we pushed back and we pushed back successfully and we held the line every time. Now, there was a point when I did go very public, and that was, you know, uh, when Barr tried to fire me in June of 2020. Or you forced him to fire you, basically. I, I basically. did, because, you know, what, what his plan was, is to, was to replace me with someone from the outside who he trusted. And I couldn't allow that to happen because it would have jeopardized the independence and integrity of the Southern District. And so I issued a press release to the entire country saying exactly what Barr was trying to do, uh, showing how he had crossed the line, and using the words from the obstruction of justice statute. And, and, it, and it did the trick because Barr then backed off. He allowed Audrey Strauss, a person of incredible integrity, a deputy U.S. attorney at that time, to succeed me as U.S. attorney. And I, had, I have complete confidence. But why not Audrey. tell these stories before the election, all of them? Well, I was called to testify before Congress a couple of weeks after uh, I was fired. And again, the restrictions apply to present and former employees. Okay. And so I went to our ethics office and I said, what can I talk about? I want to comply with the request for my testimony. What can I talk about? And they said, well, you can't talk about any cases. You can't talk about any investigations or conversations with DOJ employees. What you can talk about is your last two days in the office and conversations with Bill Barr because they didn't involve any cases or ongoing matters. So do you think Donald Trump in any of these pressure campaigns broke any laws? Pressure, pressure campaigns against you? I, you know, I, I haven't really uh, you know, focused on whether the criminal laws were broken. The, 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 the rule that was violated is a cardinal rule at the Department of Justice, which is partisan political concerns are not supposed to enter into any kind of decision-making. Mm -hmm. And that rule was repeatedly violated by Barr and others 
at Trump's Justice Department. So the uh, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, Dick Durbin, a Democrat of Illinois, he says his committee is going to investigate your allegations of political interference at the Justice Department. Would you cooperate if he called you as a witness? Absolutely. I welcome the investigation. The reason I wrote the book was so people understand the full extent of the outrageous and dangerous political interference by Maine Justice in the cases of the Southern District. The book demonstrates what Trump is capable of and likely to do again, and it and it provides a frontline view of just how vulnerable our justice system is. And so I'm, I'm happy Congress is investigating. I think they're going to throw a light on this situation as well. And, and with that added transparency, I'm hoping that something like this, something outrageous, what happened to the Southern District of New York might not ever happen again. In we- recent uh, weeks and months, uh, former Attorney General Barr has become a vocal critic of Donald Trump, especially having to do with the election lies, also having to do with the classified documents in Mar-a-Lago. In your book, you write, quote, Barr did the president's bidding, no matter how he may try to deny that now. Do you think that what Barr is doing now is, a, is an attempt at a rehabilitation of his image? I, well, I talk about in, in my book, you know, Barr, after writing his book, going on a book and, and rehabilitation tour. And, and look, when you, when you examine whether people did their jobs during the Trump administration, I think you should look as to whether they followed their oath prior to the November 2020 election. After the election and after Trump lost, I think a lot of people uh, reexamined what their personal interests, recalibrated their personal interests. And so after the election, Barr and others scurried off the ship. But before the election, he was doing the bidding of the president and undermined the rule of law and corrupted the Department of Justice. I have so many more questions for you, so stick around. I'm going to ask you about the prosecution of Jeffrey Epstein and what you told his victims. Stay with us. We'll get into that next. Stay with us. And we're back with uh, Jeffrey Berman, the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. He's out with a brand new book about his tenure, including multiple battles with uh, the Trump Justice Department. The book is called Holding the Line. Here we go. Let's show it. Buy it. Read it. Um, I want to ask you about a case that is really important to a lot of our viewers, and that is you prosecuted Jeffrey Epstein. Um, After his suicide, you talk about your discussions with some of his victims, and you write this, quote, I made a plea to the victims. Our job is not over. There is justice to be done, and we need your help. Epstein could not have done what he did without the assistance of others. Now, as far as I can tell, Ghislaine Maxwell is the only one, um, only other person who's faced, who's faced any accountability for their role in this. And I know you're not at SDNY anymore. But what, what about all these other disgusting, wealthy men who, who took advantage of these girls and women that Jeffrey Epstein trafficked. What are their names? Who are they? How come we haven't seen any perp walks of them? Well, you know, that day that you're mentioning with the victims came in, what happened was, you know, uh, we, we filed what's known as a death nolly. When Epstein took the coward's way out and committed suicide in jail, the judge actually held a hearing for his victims. And it was, you know, short notice. And uh, a lot of the victims couldn't have, but we filled a courtroom of these, 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 Horrible, horrible, devastating stories of these girls, young women, now older women, telling, you know, crippled by what was done to them. And it was heart-wrenching. And, you know, if all of his victims showed up, it wouldn't have filled a courtroom. It would have filled the courthouse. Yeah. And so what he did was, was, was so horrible. And, and we brought the case uh, because we wanted justice to be done for Epstein. And we also wanted justice to be done for the victims. 
Right. And we felt horrible when they were denied their day in court. The, the hearing before the judge where they got to describe what he did to them and what Gielan Maxwell did to them. That was an extremely moving and important day. I don't doubt that for one second, but those two were not the only people that did things to these girls and women, right? I mean, there were a whole coterie of individuals who flew to Epstein's Island and all that. The Southern District of New York doesn't pull punches. And I can assure you, if there was chargeable case against anybody else, it would have been brought. Now, I was no longer in the office. Uh, Maxwell was indicted, I think, two weeks. We were really close to indicting Maxwell when I was fired. I think two weeks later, uh, she was indicted, and I applauded you know, uh, watching it from home. But that was a very important case, and of course, she was convicted. But you don't think that there are going to be a future cases because they're not prosecutable? I mean, isn't there video? Aren't there black books? Aren't there... There's all the speculation he was blackmailing people. I'm not in the office, and, and so I'm really not in a position to tell you. All I can tell you is I have faith in the Southern District. It is populated by 220 of assistant United States attorneys who are the most brilliant, dedicated public servants in the country. And if the Southern District didn't bring a case, there was no case to be brought. We've seen a lot of images of Prince Andrew uh, in recent days because of the death of his mother. Uh, you mentioned him because he was a known associate of Jeffrey Epstein. He publicly claimed multiple times he was cooperating with your investigation. But you write, quote, we had a lot of questions for him. And as of the day I was fired, those questions remain unanswered. Very, very frustrating. He goes on television and, you know, it was an awful attempt to rehabilitate his, uh, you know, his situation. And so then he issues a press release saying he's going to cooperate with the investigations. And I say, great. I tell my team, let's go out there. Let's get his testimony. Let's get him on the record. Well, that wasn't going to happen. His lawyers gave us the runaround. We even filed an MLAT request, which was an official request to interview a foreign witness with the government officials in the UK, and that got stonewalled. Mm-hmm. So you we, think he committed a crime? You know, I, what we wanted was the information. He wouldn't give it to you even though he's out there lying, saying that he was willing to. He said he was willing to give it to us. He didn't give it to us. He stonewalled us. And as of the day I left, he was stonewalling. So you um, were fired by Bill Barr and Donald Trump publicly uh, in June of 2020, Um, after you refused to resign. Um, At the time, a couple cases were percolating that have since come forward. The Ukrainian case with Lev Parnas uh, and Steve Bannon. The indictment of Steve Bannon for alleged uh, fraud. We build the wall. Do you you think that those cases and you're going forward with these cases, which would have embarrassed Trump, is the reason that you were fired? Bill Barr, no doubt, believed that if he removed me and replaced me with someone from the outside who he trusted, he would remove an obstacle from Trump's re-election. And the two main cases that were percolating then were the Ukraine investigation arriving out of Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, who were, you know, who were associates of, uh, of Rudy Giuliani. For campaign finance violations, right? Uh, that's right. And also, let's not forget, fraud guarantee. Yeah. <laughs> And then, um, and then the other one was the Steve Bannon, We Build a Wall case, where you know, we charged that case, the office charged that case a couple, weeks a-, a couple months after I was fired. We were pretty close to it. And that was you know, a case where they were supposed to take the money and put it towards the president's premier program of building the wall. 
uh, and they told the donors, well, the money won't go to the individuals. It'll all go to the organization. And that's not and, what happened. And, and, and Bannon was charged with funneling the money to the individuals and, and keeping the money, uh, some of the money himself, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And now he's being charged by New York because no, he, he, was was pardoned. Pardoned. he was pardoned by uh, Donald Trump. Outrageous pardon. Outrageous pardon. Because uh, when asked to explain why the pardon, uh, the presidential uh, press office said that he was pardoned because he was a high-ranking Republican operative. Not, not the typical factors that go into a pardon <laughs> no. or clemency. All right, Jeffrey Berman, thank you so much for your time. And, and uh, check out the book. It's Holding the Line Inside the Nation's Preeminent U.S. Attorney's Office and its Battle with the Trump Justice Department. It just was published yesterday. Coming up next, he spent 20-plus years behind bars, convicted of killing his ex-girlfriend. But now a big announcement from prosecutors after the True Crimes podcast serial raised serious doubts about the case. Stay with us. Topping our worldly today, a spectacle for the ages. Right now, the queen is lying in state in Westminster Hall, a 900-year-old famed structure where Richard the Lionheart had his coronation feast and where the first King Charles was sentenced to be executed. As CNN's royal correspondent Max Foster reports, Some waited days and stood in a nearly three-mile-long line to pay their respects on the historic grounds. Silence as Queen Elizabeth II lies in state in Westminster Hall. Mourners filing past, paying their respects, some overcome with emotion. After spending a last night at Buckingham Palace, the coffin was carried in procession on a gun carriage. Behind, on foot, her family. King Charles III and his siblings, Princess Anne, Prince Andrew and Prince Edward. And the Queen's grandchildren, including Prince William and Prince Harry, who we last saw like this, walking behind their mother's coffin as children. On top of the casket, as the procession made its way along the Mall, the priceless imperial state crown. As it moved through iconic landmarks in London, guns fired from Hyde Park and chimes from Big Ben marking each minute. Among the first to arrive at Westminster Hall, the Queen Consort, the Princess of Wales and the Duchess of Sussex travelling by car. Witnessing history, thousands watching as the coffin made its way down the political district in Whitehall to be passed by the family to the people. Members of the Army, Navy and Air Force giving a guard of honour to their late Commander-in-Chief. The procession finally arriving at the heart of Parliament, the ancient Westminster Hall, for a short blessing. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Then, finally, a chance for mourners, some who'd waited overnight, a chance to have their own personal moment and bid farewell to their queen ahead of the state funeral on Monday. The king held calls today with President Biden and President Macron. I understand he'll continue making calls uh, tomorrow. Uh, I understand he's retired 
to his country residence, Highgrove House, tonight, where he's going to continue making those calls. Uh, a time to have some privacy, I think, tomorrow, Jake, and decompress what's happened over the last few days and get ready for the big state funeral on Monday. Max Foster, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Now to our national lead. Baltimore prosecutors are looking to throw out the murder conviction for Adnan Syed. Syed has been serving a life sentence, plus 30 years since he was convicted in the year 2000, for allegedly killing his high school ex-girlfriend, Hyman Lee. Lee was found strangled to death, her body thrown into a shallow grave. Now, Adnan Syed has always maintained his innocence. You might have heard about Syed's case when it was brought to national attention in 2014 on one of the first successful true crime podcasts, Serial. On paper, the case was like a Shakespearean mashup. Young lovers from different worlds thwarting their families, secret assignations, jealousy, suspicion, and honor besmirched. The villain, not a Moor exactly, but a Muslim all the same. And a final act of murderous revenge. In the main stage, a regular old high school across the street from a 7-Eleven. Let's bring in CNN's Alexandra Field. Alexandra, can we expect Syed to get a, a new trial? Uh, certainly the question on the minds of so many people who have followed this so closely. Look, the prosecution has filed a motion here, which could lead to a new trial. It could also lead to the dismissal of charges against Syed. What the state is saying is that if this motion is granted, they would like to see Syed immediately released from prison. They say this would continue to be an active case. A decision would then be made pending the outcome of the investigation whether to go to a new trial or to dismiss the charges altogether. But they are being very clear, Jake, in saying this is not an assertion of the state's belief in Syed's innocence. Instead, they're saying this is an assertion of their lack of confidence in his conviction. Back in March, a Baltimore judge ordered new DNA testing in this case. Did this contribute at all to prosecutors taking this very rare step of making a motion to, to vacate the conviction. Right, because for years we've seen defense attorneys you know, fight on behalf of Syed. This is coming from the prosecution. It follows this nearly year-long joint reinvestigation into the case between prosecutors and the defense. Uh, DNA and new ways of testing DNA playing a role here. Uh, the unreliability of cell phone data also focused on heavily in this motion. But really, the key here that prosecutors are focusing on is evidence that has developed in the intervening years and some evidence that existed already at the time of the trial about two alternative suspects. And the state is saying that the evidence concerning these alternative possible suspects was not properly shared at the time. They say the state files at the time of the trial included the fact that one of the suspects had said he would make her Miss Lee disappear. He would kill her. Uh, the motion also lays out the fact that one of the suspects was convicted of attacking a woman in her vehicle. Another one of the suspects was convicted of engaging in serial rape and sexual assault. Again, some of the info known at the time, some of the info developing uh, in the past years and decades since Syed has sat behind bars. But really, the state believing this is a very compelling case in order to go ahead and make this motion. Yeah, a stunning development and perhaps one on the path towards justice. Alexander Field, thanks so much. Next, how the White House is trying to capitalize on Republicans divided over the issue of abortion. Stay with us. In our politics lead, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham's proposed abortion ban is energizing Democrats and dividing Republicans. Democratic lawmakers seem very eager to rally against Graham's proposed legislation with just 55 days to go until the November midterm elections. And sources tell CNN the Vice President Kamala Harris is planning to make abortion access the central theme of her campaign message 
this fall. Let's discuss with Margaret Hoover and John Avalon. Thanks so much for being here. Always good to have you guys Always here. Good to see you. So, Margaret, Democrats leaning hard into denouncing uh, Graham's bill. They, they now don't have to speak in hypotheticals about the, the Senate or Republicans wanting uh, an abortion ban. We should just be clear also, this bill would ban abortion at 15 weeks nationally, but it would also, with exceptions for rape and incest, but it also would allow states, if they already have stricter bans, to have those stricter bans. Right. So it's not... Federalism in one direction. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, exactly. Uh, It's not like, oh, here's a compromise, we all can come around. No, no. It's compromise on one side and then not for the other. But I guess my question is, is this going to work for Democrats? Is this going to work for Republicans? Okay, so anytime you're talking about abortion right now in this cycle, you're helping Democrats and hurting Republicans. Democrats have just won the messaging on this. And Republicans, the reason, look, you and I... John Avalon, you may even also know this. Uh, There are two kinds of bills. There's a bill that you propose as a senator because you actually want it to become a law. And there's a bill that you propose as a senator for a totally different reason. Maybe you're trying to position yourself for a run. You're trying to rally some messaging around. This is a messaging bill. This has nothing to do with actually trying to pass a law. And the reason is because Republicans recognize they're losing on this, so they wanted to create a bill, which, by the way, backfired. But Lindsey was creating a bill with the right-to-life groups and all the pro-life groups there in the press conference to try to talk about the only area of the abortion debate that they win, which is late-term abortion. (laughs) So if you look at when he announced this bill yesterday, it was all about ending abortion on demand and ending abortion up to the moment of birth. That's what they're trying. They're trying. I know you're laughing. No, no, no. It's it's, Honestly, Mitch McConnell's not laughing because this did not help him at all. In fact, the Republican Senate candidate in Colorado... Joe O'Dea said, said this about uh, the bill, quote, a Republican ban is as reckless and tone deaf as is Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer's hostility to considering any compromise on late-term abortion, parental notification or conscience protections for religious uh, hospitals. Right. I mean, look, this is the worst messaging bill ever in terms of actually putting Republicans on the back foot and giving Democrats the gift they want. Look, Republicans have done very well trying to portray Rep- Democrats as being maximalist on abortion. And a handful were. And that did a lot of hard work for him. But by having the, by having the Supreme Court uh, go in and remove a constitutional right after 50 years, they have energized Democrats and not just Democrats. You know, in the week after uh, Roe was overturned, 70 percent of new registrations in Kansas were from women. And you saw what happened. And Democrats consistently outperforming expectations since then. So all this does is hang a lantern on the Republicans problem. It doesn't do whatever Lindsey thought it was going to do, because you all see all his fellow Senate colleagues on the Republican side trying to distance themselves like he's got leprosy. So he's not a great messenger for this. Yeah. And and, uh, CBS News conducted a poll of voters in Pennsylvania uh, where two of this year's most closely watched uh, races are for governor and and for Senate. Voters were asked what issues they considered very important. The economy, of course, on top, 80 percent saying it was very important. Abortion was down at 56 percent, which was the lowest among issues that a majority said were very important. But in what could be a positive sign for Democrats, among the voters who say abortion is very important, Fetterman beats Oz, the Democrat beats a Republican, by 40 points. And and when you look at the crosstabs of that poll you see how much more motivating that issue is for Democrats than for Republicans. I mean, for Republicans, it really doesn't move the needle much at all. 80 percent of Republicans said the Dobbs decision didn't impact their vote at all. Right. They already were going to vote for Republicans. Completely energized. I mean, look, the, the one area when you're talking about that Pennsylvania Senate race, the one area where Oz has helped is the economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, every other issue, Oz is trailing in fact, even among Republicans, 64 percent have voters remor- buyers remorse that he's the nominee. And then, well, then, John, there was a really interesting exchange on Twitter, believe it or not. Um, our friend uh, MSNBC host Chris Hayes, he pointed out on Twitter in his view 
that as long as Republicans view abortion as infanticide, mm-hmm. um, which many of them do, yeah. uh, they will continue to propose complete bans because they think it's murder. They think yeah. it's mass yeah. murder. And conservative writer Ben uh, Dominich um, agreed. He's saying, no, we won't. No, we won't stop fighting. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, that's somebody's on Twitter said, but, you know, put that in a Democratic campaign ad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, th- this is the problem with maximalist positions. This is an issue where 7% of the Americans agree, right? It's the old Clintonian formulation of safe, legal and rare. And the Supreme Court just basically overturned that. But conservatives have always said the backstop was, look, it's going to go back to the states. We're going to get rid of a terrible law that passed 50 years ago. And what Lindsey Graham has done is just said, nope, that's actually not the plan at all. We want to we want to ban all abortion. And if you go to constitutional ban on abortion, that's like a 19 percent issue and has been for a long, long time. Yeah. Even if it's a 15 week ban. I mean, uh, yeah, 15 week ban. The point is, he's talking about it. And now Oz can say, I mean, Fetterman can say to Oz, your party's talking about bans. And by the way, Oz has had to change his position on it, too, about uh, around the around the borders of, of rape and incest. I mean, he has been trying to navigate this because the truth is he's not a pro-life candidate. I mean, he's never been pro-life until he was trying to run for this primary nomination. Who are you and he believe? felt that he had to be. This is a this is a losing issue for Republicans. And frankly, I mean, it, it, you can understand why Mitch McConnell said we just we want it to be back to the states. Let's just stick with that as the party line, which, by the way, that was the argument for 50 years. Speaking of uh, beliefs, uh, we should note that it was a clean sweep for uh, people yep. who lie about uh, the 2020 election in New Hampshire in the Republican primary. Trump aligned candidates Don Bolduck and uh, Carolyn Levitt both w- won their races uh, against more establishment uh, Republicans. Uh, what do you make of this? I mean, it, it's <laughs> it, it is the evidence that Trump has permeated the Republican Party up and down. I mean, you also have this case where the the most successful Republican governors in the country from Maryland and Massachusetts, Charlie Baker and Larry Hogan, can't endorse their successor, the, the successor nomination nominee, because even in those states where you've had a successful Republican who's not pro-Trump enough, yeah. who's not big lie enough, who's not... I wonder what uh, Governor Sununu, who's running for re-election, who is not an election liar, I wonder what he's going to do. Is I, he- I look, I mean, this is this the candidate who won, Bulldog, called him a communist sympathizer and said his family, you know, profited off off terrorism. So I, I don't think there's a lot of there's there's a lot of bad blood here for good reason. Look, the problem is the fundamental catch twenty two is that Republicans are realizing that they can't win a pro- close a primary, close or open, unless they endorse election lies, but they can't win a general election if they do. And that's a problem of their own making. Yeah, I guess we'll see, though. I mean, we don't know. We, we'll, they we'll, might, we'll see, but in, they pur- might win. in purple and swing states, that is a lot of we'll, added balance. This well, is we'll, all lining up for a Democratic Senate. We'll and see. Or we'll see. We'll the see. end of the republic. Either way. <laughs> Margaret Hoover and John Avalon, thanks so much. A major visit today that signals just how confident Ukrainians feel now that part of their country has been recaptured from the Russians. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, it's a dangerous and deadly combination. Weak and outdated power grids trying to handle rising electricity demands as climate change fuels worsening and more frequent extreme weather. Plus, could taking a daily multivitamin help prevent Alzheimer's? The results of a new study that shocked even the scientists doing the research. And leading this hour, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky now says more than 3,000 square miles of his country have been retaken from Russian forces since the start of this month. It's a sign the Ukraine military counteroffensive is working for now. But after a call with Vladimir Putin, the United Nations Secretary of War said a ceasefire remains out of sight. As CNN's Nick Payton Walsh reports for us now, the Ukrainian flag flies once again over de-occupied Izium, 
President Zelensky promises the country is moving forward toward complete victory. This is what confidence in victory looks like. Delighted swagger from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky touring the liberated city of Izium. A commander-in-chief greeted here as another human. The smiles for this president as genuine as the danger. Listen here and you can hear explosions as he talks. It may be possible to temporarily occupy our territories, he says, but it is certainly impossible to occupy our people. These last months have been extremely hard for you. This is why I ask you, take care of yourselves, because you are the most precious thing we have. It is a victory that came at an as yet unspecified cost, this moment of silence for those dead. What he sees, utter devastation, part of why Russia is losing. It's hard to occupy and defend a city in this ruin. It's hard to imagine the Russian army's state of mind when it left behind this much of its armour. And what Zelensky did, another reason Ukrainian morale seems to remain high. Russian President Vladimir Putin is usually hundreds of miles away in Moscow when he gives out medals. This past startling week, a tale of two nations and a gulf in enthusiasm for the fight. Moscow's manpower crisis so acute this video is apparently from a Russian prison, allegedly showing the man called Putin's chef, Evgeny Prigozhin, personally recruiting convicts for the front line. He tells prisoners that war is hard, they can't desert, get taken prisoner, drink, take drugs or have sex with flora, fauna, men or women in the fight. An undesirable message to an undesirable crowd. Russia increasingly less looking like a nation united in what it won't even call a war yet. Even Putin's stooges turning. Here Chechen leader Ramzan Kadyrov again undermining the Kremlin that brutally put him in power. If you ask me, I would enact martial law and exhaust all possibilities to end the conflict with these demons. I'm like a volunteer for Russia, he said, writing later, quote, we are at war with the whole NATO bloc. The unthinkable is happening. Russian dissent and criticism growing, but not yet at the speed of Ukrainian advances. It is startling just to imagine where we are and where we were six months ago, Jake. And the choices now are really all for Vladimir Zelensky. Do they continue to push towards the north of Luhansk from where they are here? Uh, do they look at possibility pushing towards the Azov Sea and cutting off Crimea from the Russian mainland? Or do they put more effort into the counteroffensive in the south? In the south, though, we've begun tonight to get a glimpse of how Russia's responding. Critical water infrastructure there hit a Dam, it seems, having burst and flooding down a main river there. Significant damage reported from a cruise missile strike. And we've just heard in the last hour here in Kharkiv, a relatively distant but significant blast as well. Russia, it seems, looking to hit infrastructure, ruin the lives of ordinary people. The fundamental question, though, do they have any manpower or conventional force to reapply back into the fight here? Are all the choices now in the hands of Kiev? Jake? Nick Payton-Walsh reporting for us from Kharkiv. Thank you so much.
CNN has learned that former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson was in Moscow, Russia this week. CNN's told that Richardson and his team held meetings with Russian leadership. The goal of those meetings is not immediately clear. However, in the past, Richardson has worked to free Americans detained abroad. And there are, of course, two high-profile American detainees in Russia, if not more. CNN's Kylie Atwood joins us now from the State Department with more. Kylie, what's at stake in these meetings between Richardson and Russian officials? Well, Jake, there's a lot at stake because it comes as, as you said, the Biden administration has been trying to secure a deal to secure the release of Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan, these two Americans who are wrongfully detained in Russia. And Bill Richardson is someone who has in the past been involved in efforts to get home Americans who are wrongfully detained. Uh, So the Richardson Center isn't commenting on this visit right now, but it's worth reflecting on the last time that Richardson was in Russia. That was in February. And when he came home from that trip after meeting with Russian officials, he briefed White House officials, according to a source familiar, on what the Russians were willing to do and how they were willing to do it in terms of a deal to get home Trevor Reed. That's another American who was wrongfully detained in Russia at the time. Now, fast forward two months. In April, there was a prisoner swap. Of course, that prisoner swap was carried out by the U.S. government. But it is clear that Bill Richardson could have played a role in that prisoner swap coming to fruition. And so that is why this is such a significant trip right now. What does the Russian government have to say, if anything? They're saying that they have no comment. They're saying that Richardson didn't have any meetings at the Kremlin. But we should note that the Biden administration is actually expressing some uh, frustration over this, some concern, because what they are saying is that Richardson didn't coordinate with the U.S. embassy in Moscow uh, surrounding this trip. And they're also saying that any efforts that don't go through this U.S.-Russia government channel are likely to hinder the U.S. government efforts to get home Griner and Willen. Jake. All right. Kylie Atwood at the State Department for us. Thank you so much. Joining us live to discuss retired Rear Admiral John Kirby, who serves on President Biden's National Security Council. Um, Admiral Kirby, good to see you. Let's start with Bill Richardson's reported visit to Moscow this week. Uh, He said he's not trying to replace the U.S. government. Uh, Do you think he shouldn't be there, as Kylie just reported? Is that the position of the Biden administration, that he's hindering more than helping? Uh, look, I will let Mr. Richardson speak to his own travels and, and discussions. I would remind the State Department does have a travel warning out uh, advising Americans not to travel to Russia. This is not the time uh, to be in Moscow or in Russia at all. Uh, we are continuing our discussions and our uh, attempt at negotiations on behalf of the U.S. government to get Brittany Griner and, and, and Paul Whelan home. Uh, and those efforts are continuing. And, uh, and we believe that the way you get traction on something like this, Jake, is, is through government-to-government dialogue, and that's what we're pursuing. So if, if, if Governor Richardson's walking, watching right now, your message to him is come back to the United States? Our message is that private citizens uh, should not be in Moscow uh, at all right now, uh, and that private citizens uh, cannot negotiate on behalf of the United States government. Look, uh, we, we share Mr. Richardson's desire to see Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan home with their families uh, and her teammates, where she belongs and where he belongs. And we're working very, very hard at doing that through government channels. That's the appropriate way to do that, uh, and, those, and those efforts are ongoing. Given Russia's rather humiliating losses in Ukraine this week, um, do you think that puts Russian President Vladimir Putin in a position where he is less likely to cooperate with efforts to get Americans out? It's difficult to know what Mr. Putin's going to decide or think on any given issue. Uh, We would hope that uh, an effort 
to arrange for the return of two American citizens that are wrongfully detained uh, can be held separate and distinct uh, from Mr. Putin's illegal invasion of Ukraine and whatever woes he might be feeling on the battlefield. These are not related issues. Uh, and we're pursuing the return of Brittany and Paul in, in a separate, complete different channel because they need to be treated that way. You shared yesterday that more aid to Ukraine could be announced in the coming days, that the yeah. U.S. is having real-time discussions with the Ukrainians about what they need most militarily. What are their biggest needs and what are their biggest asks right now? Well, you know, Secretary Austin just held another uh, meeting of the contact group over, over in Germany uh, just uh, this week, uh, where more than 50 countries uh, gathered to talk about exactly this issue. Uh, I don't want to speak for the Ukrainians. I'll just tell you that we are uh, in lockstep with them, talking to them every day about what they need, uh, and we're going to continue to provide additional security assistance, as I said yesterday, probably here in, uh, in very short order, in coming days. Um, and what it'll be, well, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll announce it when we can, but I think you're going to see us continue to try Try to give them systems and capabilities that are going to help them in this fight that they're in. Now they're on the they're on the offense in the in the Donbass, and they're on the offense uh, down in uh, Kherson. Uh, we want to make sure uh, that we are giving them the tools that they need uh, to continue those offensive operations and be as successful as possible. So I think you'll see, you know, continued uh, provision of of uh, artillery, continued provision of of long-range rocket-type systems uh, that allow them to strike deep behind Russian lines. And what they're doing right now with those systems is, is pretty impressive. Retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling uh, shared his concerns about the fatigue in, in the Ukrainian army. He tweeted, quote, units will begin to fail if they aren't rested on day five of an offensive and commanders and leaders start making really bad decisions after three days of little or no sleep, unquote. Uh, are you concerned about Ukraine holding the gains they've made? Uh, are you concerned about them being able to expand on them? How big of a threat is fatigue, do you think? Fatigue for any military in, in any operation, whether it's air, maritime, or on the ground, is always a factor that commanders have to weigh. Uh, and we know, uh, we're in touch with uh, our Ukrainian counterparts, we know that they're weighing a lot of factors during these counteroffensive operations to include their logistics and sustainment, their their air support. I mean, they, they have planned these uh, operations now for weeks, uh, and we think that they're dutifully mindful uh, of the effect on their troops and what they've got to do to, to, keep, to keep them in the fight. Russia's withdrawal from the Kharkiv region was not careful. It wasn't cautious. They ran. They fled. What does it tell you that the Russians could not hold this territory that is so close to their own border? I think there's a lot there, Jake. I mean, first of all, they, we know that they had to divert manpower from uh, the east, from the Donbass, in that Kharkiv area, uh, to, uh, down to the south, because they knew that the Ukrainians were going to move on the south. So, so they didn't have as much manpower in the east uh, as they did in the south. I think that was a factor. Uh, this is an army that has, from the very get-go, uh, had logistics and sustainment problems of their own, unit cohesion and morale, poor leadership, poor command and control. And while the Russians have tried in the last couple of months to fix those problems, it's clear that they haven't fully done so and that all those factors are weighing in uh, to the poor performance we've seen uh, from Russian soldiers in the north. Rear Admiral John Kirby, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Yes, sir. What really happened in a Hardee's fast food restaurant with the FBI and that erratic MyPillow CEO? Stick around. In our politics lead, Mike Lindell, that erratic my Pillow CEO, who became an enthusiastic mouthpiece for Trump's deranged lies about the election. Mike Lindell says the FBI has served him with a subpoena for his cell phone. Lindell says the encounter occurred 
yesterday while he was in his car in a drive through lane at a Hardee's restaurant in Minnesota. CNN's Evan Perez joins us live with more on this. Evan, what are authorities looking for from Mr. Lindell? Well, Jake, according to the subpoena, which uh, Lindell shared a copy of with us, uh, it says that, you know, they're investigating this uh, computer tam- tampering, this voting machine tampering uh, inve- investigation. This is part of a voting tampering investigation out of Mesa County, Colorado, where uh, Tina Peters, who is the county clerk there, is already facing uh, state level charges. She's pleaded not guilty to those charges, but she is facing charges with regard to uh, allowing unauthorized people access to these voting machines in that county. Now, according to uh, the, the, the subpoena that we've now seen, uh, what the federal grand jury says that they're investigating is identity theft and intentional damage to a protected computer. And this is now obviously a federal investigation. This is the FBI looking at the same thing, things that the, that the uh, state authorities have been looking into, which is the idea that uh, Lindell and a host of other characters, including Tina Peters, were trying to use this episode as a way to undermine uh, you know, the, the, uh, the election results from 2020, Jake. So the Justice Department, as we've been reporting all week, you and your colleague, uh, Sarah um, Murray, the Justice Department issued a sweeping number of subpoenas, more than 30 in the last week. Is Lindell's subpoena part of that investigation or, or separate? This appears to be a separate investigation. And again, it's based a, a grand jury down in Colorado who, that is looking at this. But Jake, what, what we've, what we've, from looking at the subpoena, it is clear that the FBI, that prosecutors have a window now using Lindell and some of the other characters that were involved in this election, election denier uh, group here. Uh, it, it appears that what is giving them a reason to, to do is, is to ask questions about some of these efforts in other places around the country. We know that there are efforts to get into voting machines in Georgia and other states, and it's clear that the FBI is interested to know more about this broader effort around the country. Evan Perez, thanks so much. Uh, Let's talk about this with New York Times senior political reporter Maggie Haberman and the former director of strategic communications in the Trump White House, Alyssa Farah Griffin. Uh, Maggie, Mike Lindell, of all people, has been a central figure in Trump spreading these lies uh, about the 2020 election. What do you see as the significance of this subpoena? There's a couple of things, Jake. Number one, Mike Lindell, as you said, he has been at the center of this with Trump for a while. He was the person who was encouraging the idea that Trump could be reinstated to office, which is not possible. And it's really important to note that because it shows just how extreme what he's talking about is. Uh, Number one, this shows the DOJ is still very focused on people who were trying to get Trump to or trying to work with Trump at Trump's desire to subvert the results of the 2020 election. But this particular uh, subpoena seems to have ties to local officials. This is not just about, uh, quote unquote, fake electors as we knew it to be. This seems to go in a different direction. Now, I think we need to note for people, it doesn't mean the charges are imminent with any of these things. We have no idea what it means, but it does mean there's an active investigation ongoing into a new area we hadn't seen before. And Alyssa, I wish I could say that the election lies were only coming from characters like Mike Lindell, but we saw in New Hampshire last night a sweep for election liars. Um, uh, the, the Senate candidate, House candidate. Um, what, what's going on with your party? 
Well, I mean, I think it shows MAGAism is bigger than Trump himself. Um, he didn't even endorse in most of these New Hampshire races, but the candidates <clears throat> who espoused his lies, who modeled his kind of behaviors, are the ones who were elected. And it's to the detriment of my party. So uh, Bullduck, the Republican nominee for Senate now, is almost certainly going to lose to Maggie Hassan, a, a fairly popular Democrat, in a seat that was winnable. The NRSC tried to recruit Governor Sununu for that seat, one of the most popular governors in the country, my personal favorite governor. He didn't want to run. And in what scenario? would a you know popular governor want to be in the Senate that's going to be as divided as the one that we expect it to be in this sort of Trump era. So, I mean, he's got a huge hold on the party. I think the makeup of Congress, if Republicans take it back, is going to look very different than it has. You're going to have a, a large number of election deniers, a large number of people we would have considered fringe many years ago, but now it's the mainstream. So on that topic, uh, I've been working on a documentary uh, that's coming out on Sunday night uh, about the attempted coup and what the January 6th committee uh, has uh, come up with. I interviewed you two uh, for the previous one, number one uh, in this, and, and I interviewed only you for this one. Sorry, Alyssa. But uh, in your stead uh, is Sarah Matthews, the former Trump deputy sec- press secretary, uh, who uh, sat with me for an interview. Uh, and let's play a little bit of the clip. This is uh, Sarah talking about uh, President Trump. Based on all of this, do you think... Your former boss, Donald Trump, is fit to be president. No. Um, while I, I support, you know, I never would have worked for him if I didn't support his agenda. That's why I went to work for him. Um, and I thought that he did do a lot of good during his four years. I think that his, you know, actions on January 6th and the lead up to it and the way that he's acted in the aftermath Um, And his continuation of pushing this lie that the election is stolen um, has made him wholly unfit to hold office ever again. Your reaction? She's absolutely right. I think that the biggest thing, listen, we'll all see where Trump's legal woes go. There's there's many of them. There's DOJ. There's the Southern District of New York. There's Georgia. But at the end of the day, it's his character. This is a man who lies with impunity, who treats people terribly, who, um, you know, basically betrays anyone who's not directly loyal to him. He lacks the character to be in office. That's the most fundamental thing. Like, as we think about 2024, to anyone considering voting for him, that is the reason he should not be in the Oval Office. Um, We have never seen uh, a sitting U.S. president uh, and potential Republican nominee for president or major party nominee have so many people who worked in his administration and in his White House, people with firsthand experience, uh, say so loudly and clearly, this person is not fit to be president. And yet it seems to have no impact uh, on his hold uh, of the Republican base. I'm actually not sure that that's true, that it's no impact, Jake. I do think that the the, the public hearings that the uh, House Select Committee has held, certainly um, the, the last couple, I think with Cassidy Hutchinson in particular, I do think that that left an impact with some people. I think that hearing what she was saying did impact people. I think that, it, at least on the margins, I think it has made some people think twice. But look, I was thinking as Alyssa was talking about how Everything that she said about him, um, and and this is a critique that's been made by many, many, many people, um, it was made by many, many people, to your point, uh, prior to the 2016 election, too. And so, uh, you know, people tend to vote in their own self-interest, and unless that they have reason to believe that their self-interest is not voting with Donald Trump, um, you know, they will continue to support him. And I think that the reason that all of these House members getting elected is so significant is not just about... Uh, you know, the speaker's race, and it's not just about the composition of Congress. 
these people are going to be involved in certifying or not certifying the 2024 election. And it's really important to bear that in mind. The one thing I'll just say on that that is I don't really understand is it's not a binary choice between Biden and Trump right now. So for Republicans, I do think we vote our self-interest. So if you say, you know, the economy was better, I had more in my 401k under Trump, that's a valid position. But it doesn't need to be him. It could be virtually any generic Republican and you're going to have the policies you saw under him. That's what people seem to forget. What do you what do you um, think about the fact that um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who maybe is one of the people you're thinking about, has been out there endorsing and trying to get elected a bunch of these election liars, whether Kerry Lake in Arizona or Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania. He is uh, he's he's he hasn't really been all in on the election lie, uh, but he's out there pushing people who are. It's, he, he has his finger on the pulse more so than most politicians other than Trump of where the base is. DeSantis does. And so he sees that. The election lie is still widely believed. As much as 60 percent of Republicans believe it. But it's immoral, so is what I'm right. saying. Right. It, to me, it, it, that is a character litmus test. Um, DeSantis is not my candidate. Um, we'll see if he gets the nomination. But there, I think that is a, a, the best example of somebody's character they would have in office is if they're, del- they're backing people who are literally spreading lies to the public. Liz Cheney has said that it's a, it's, a, it's a litmus test for her also, the fact that DeSantis is out there supporting people who are all-in election liars, in some cases, frankly, Looney Tunes. Look, I mean, uh, DeSantis is clearly a very ambitious politician. Uh, my colleague Matt Flegenheimer has a really big piece out about him this week. I would encourage people to That's read great. it. That's great, in the Times Magazine. It's a fantastic piece. piece. And, yeah. and it really does walk through his evolution on a bunch of issues in which, you know, he, like many other politicians, have made themselves more purely MAGA as opposed to where he started or where he thinks the base is, to Alyssa's point, um, about having his finger on the pulse. But I do think that there are some people for whom, and, you know, you heard Sarah say it, Alyssa has obviously said it many times, Liz Cheney clearly says it. There are people for whom January 6th, and even before that, after November 3rd, was just a bridge too far. That The things that he was saying, you just simply could not accept somebody refusing to go along with a peaceful transfer of power. And there were too many people, Alyssa was not one of them, but there were too many people who were trying to pretend that it wasn't going to a bad place, who continued yeah. to work for him when it was Pretty obvious it was. So in the last hour, I spoke with uh, another former Trump administration official, the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Jeff Berman. Um, And he uh, told me that he thought it was basically because of the investigation into Igor Fruman. What are their names? Fruman. Lev Parnas. Lev Parnas. Parnas, (laughs) uh, And the investigation into into Steve Bannon, uh, which were bubbling up but hadn't broken yet, that that's the reason he was fired. Take a listen. Bill Barr, no doubt, believed that if he removed me and replaced me with someone from the outside who he trusted, he would remove an obstacle from Trump's re-election. You agree? Well, I think that's probably true. I will say this. I Every time I was in the room with Bill Barr, he gave sound counsel to the former president. Hands down, he stopped him from invoking the Insurrection Act sooner than he wanted to. That said, I very much agree with Jeffrey Berman's assessment. I think, and by the way, can we just say this? Steve Bannon committed fraud. He defrauded um, mostly Republican voters who wanted the wall and made a profit off of it. He should have been in jail. He shouldn't have been pardoned. But I, I, I agree with his assessment. All right. Maggie Haberman, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Join me for a new CNN special report. It's American Coup, the January 6th investigation. That documentary begins Sunday night at 9 only here on CNN. Things are getting even more bizarre in the Alex Jones, Sandy Hook parents trial, including witnesses who appear not to know very much about the subject they were called to testify about. Stay with us. Hmm. 
In our national lead now today in a Connecticut courtroom, a clearer picture of how Alex Jones profited off of Sandy Hook family's grief. A representative for the conspiracy theorist's company Infowars testified that viewers, quote, skyrocketed while he was spreading lies about the 2012 shooting. CNN's Drew Griffin is following the second day of this trial against Jones. Drew, it was all about Jones' business dealings today. Yeah, certainly not emotional, but it was bizarre. On the stand, Jake, an attorney hired to represent the Alex Jones company and testify on the company's behalf, but she didn't seem to know much about the company at all. Brittany Paz was her name. Uh, She's not a Jones employee, has never worked there, but was paid by Jones to testify as a representative of his company. She responded, I don't know so many times that uh, I lost track and admitted she hadn't even read some of Jones' own depositions. But what she could do, Jake, was provide a backdrop for the victim's attorney to outline the numbers of viewers who heard, saw, or read Alex Jones lie about Sandy Hook, and they were in the tens of millions. It goes from 49 million users. Oh, this this one's... (laughs) That's what it says, yes. It goes from 24.9 million page views to 35.7 million page views, right? That's what it says, yes. And you know that from December 14, 2012, all the way through the end of January, Alex Jones and Free Speech Systems were repeatedly publishing claims that the shooting was staged, correct? I believe so, yes. Jake, our previous reporting on Alex Jones shows all those users and page views equals big cash. Jones sells supplements on his site and raked in $165 million over a three-year period, making up to $800,000 in a single day. Of course, he's already been found liable in this case, just like in the Texas case. So it's up to the jury to decide how much money to award these many families that he lied about and put in danger. Drew, Jones has been doing this conspiracy nonsense and lying about people for decades. I just saw a clip the other day, uh, right after 9-11, where he blamed Israel for 9-11. How is this nonsense? How are these lies allowed to continue? You know, he, he, he was deplatformed by YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter in 2018. But that really didn't harm him at all because he has this vast business that exists online. This show is on a website, basically. So he doesn't need advertisers. He has a supplement business, and he just says whatever he wants. Seems to be untouchable, except by these lawsuits. And we'll see if that puts a dent in in his business structure. All right, Drew Griffin, thanks so much. NFL Hall of Famer Brett Favre, the former governor of Mississippi, and a volleyball stadium. Why text messages are raising new questions. That's next. We're back with our sports lead. New questions being raised today about NFL Hall of Famer Brett Favre, a college volleyball facility, and money that was meant to help needy families. As CNN's Diane Gallagher reports, Favre's lawyers are denying any wrongdoing. New court documents filed this week include text messages that appear to show Mississippi's former governor helping NFL Hall of Famer Brett Favre secure millions to build a volleyball facility, money that came from funds meant for needy families in one of the nation's poorest states. A fact that Favre's attorney claims the former quarterback did not know at the time. Brett 
it couldn't have been more honorable in any of it. He had no idea where it came from. The text messages, first revealed by Mississippi Today as part of its years-long investigative reporting into the scandal, were entered into the state's civil lawsuit on Monday by an attorney for the nonprofit founded by Nancy New, who was already pleaded guilty to charges related to the overall welfare fund scheme, which the state auditor has called the largest public fraud scheme in Mississippi history. New's son has also pleaded guilty to charges related to the scheme. Court documents show that he knowingly transferred public funds intended for needy families for the construction of the volleyball facility. The batch of Nancy News texts start in 2017 and appear to show former Governor Phil Bryant, Favre, New and others working to secure the money to build the volleyball center at Favre's alma mater, the University of Southern Mississippi, where his daughter then played the sport. On August 3, 2017, court documents show that Favre texted Nancy New, quote, If you were to pay me, is there any way the media can find out where it came from and how much? She responded, No, we have never had that information publicized. I understand you being uneasy about that, though. The next day, adding, Wow, just got off the phone with Phil Bryant. He is on board with us. We will get this done. On that same day, Bryant texted New, just left Brett Favre. Can we help him with this project? We should meet soon to see how I can make sure we keep your projects on course. Favre and New text regular updates on their continued conversations with the governor, forwarding each other messages from Bryant on the funding status. In August 2019, Favre tells Nancy New, he said to me just a second ago that he has seen it, but hint, hint, that you need to reword it to get it accepted. He then forwarded a message allegedly from the governor instructing how to rework the funding proposal. At one point, New asked, confidential, do you get the impression the governor will help us? Favre responded, I really feel like he is trying to figure out a way to get it done without actually saying it. Months later, Governor Bryant asked New whether she had gotten any of the new programs from the state's Department of Human Services. New responded in part, someone was definitely pulling for us behind the scenes. Thank you. Bryant responded with a smile emoji. Neither Favre nor Bryant have been charged with anything related to the welfare fund scheme. In a statement, the former governor's attorney told CNN in part, Cases should be tried in courts of law where rules of evidence govern and privileges are respected. They should not be tried in the press where innuendo and speculation sometimes get confused with actual facts. Mississippi Today reporter Anna Wolf told CNN she began digging on the volleyball center funding in 2020, asking both Favre and Bryant about the project then. And Brett Favre told us that he did not discuss the volleyball project with the governor, which is obviously flat out um, you know, proven to be incorrect by the text messages that we uncovered this week. And the governor um, also, you know, tried to distance himself from the project, said that he didn't know anything about it. This is not the first time the former quarterback's name has been associated with the scheme. Last year, he was forced to repay hundreds of thousands of dollars that the state auditor said was illegally paid to Favre from welfare funds for speeches the auditor claimed Favre never gave. The Mississippi native said in May of 2020 that he had no knowledge the money he'd received was misappropriated. 
Now, there have been six people criminally charged in connection with this welfare scheme. And in May, the state of Mississippi filed civil suits against 38 individuals, including Brett Favre. The former Republican governor, Phil Bryant, has not been included in any of this. He's not a defendant there, although U.S. Representative Benny Thompson did ask the DOJ to look into both Bryant and Favre's connections. And Jake, just one more thing here. The breadth of this scheme, we are talking about, according to the auditor, $77 million misspent from a welfare fund of the poorest state in the country where more than 200,000 children live below the poverty line. Just terrific. Diane Gallagher, thanks so much. Could a multivitamin a day keep memory loss at bay? The new study that stunned even the scientists doing the research. And our health lead now, taking a daily multivitamin could, could possibly be a health benefit, not just for your body, but for your brain. A new study from the Alzheimer's Association suggests that it may slow cognitive decline in older adults. To help us understand this encouraging news in regards to finding potential ways to combat Alzheimer's disease and dementia. Let's bring in CNN's Dr. Tara Narula. Dr. Narula, tell us more about this new study. Yes, so this was a study of 2,200 older Americans, so over 65, average age about 72. And researchers wanted to see if they gave them a supplement, either a cocoa extract supplement or a multivitamin, could they protect their cognitive function? So they gave them a cognitive test at baseline, and then after three years, they looked after three years, they would test them year one, two, and three. And essentially, they thought they might find a benefit with the cocoa extract group, but they did not. What they did find was a significant benefit in the multivitamin group. They found that it basically slowed the decline of cognitive aging by about 60%. In addition to that, in those patients or subjects that had underlying cardiovascular disease, they saw even more benefit. So people seem really excited about this. Uh, why, uh, obvious, other than the obvious reasons, why do you think it's so interesting? Well, prior reviews of nutritional supplements have really shown insufficient evidence to recommend that to protect cognitive function. So this is kind of the first large-scale, what we call randomized controlled trial of high-quality study to show a potential benefit. There's no FDA-approved interventions for older asymptomatic adults to protect cognitive function. So when you think of the potential public health impact of something as simple as a multivitamin that's safe, accessible, affordable, if it really is effective, you could have the potential to help millions of Americans. We know that six and a half million of Americans have uh, Alzheimer's disease. When you look worldwide, we're talking about 46 million adults uh, who suffer from Alzheimer's dementia or some form of dementia. So real potential. So what's the, what's, what are the takeaways? Like what should people at home be, be doing right now because they're watching us? Well, it's important to emphasize this is not practice or guideline changing yet. This is definitely preliminary. Just one study. One study, important to replicate it in larger studies, studies with a more diverse population. Um, and what we really counsel people for in general is to eat a well-balanced diet, right? There's tons of bioactive nutrients in a good diet, and you can get them that way. There are certain populations that certainly need supplementation. And then there are other low-cost strategies that you can do to improve your cognitive function, things like exercise, things like managing your stress, sleep, avoiding too much alcohol or cigarettes, social stimulation, mental stimulation. So these are easy strategies to use. Um, and I have heard in the past people in the medical community express concern about supplements. I'm so glad you asked this question because this comes up all the time. And many times patients don't actually tell you they're taking supplements. So it's really important for healthcare providers to ask that question. Are you taking supplements? And to review with patients what they're taking. The supplement industry is not regulated by the FDA as drugs. They're regulated as foods. So essentially they get put out on the market without having to prove safety. The labels may not always be accurate. And so there have been many 
cases of supplements having contaminants in them, heavy metals, other chemicals, other types of drugs. Uh, Sometimes they can interact with prescription meds that you're taking, and people have ended up in the emergency room or hospitalized because of supplement use. Now, multivitamins in general are probably relatively safe, but even those, it's important to discuss with your primary care doctor or your doctor, this is what I'm taking, is it okay? Because in some patient populations who have underlying conditions or are taking other drugs, it may not be okay. And if you're wondering why they're not regulated by the FDA, it's because the supplement industry is very wealthy and they have powerful lobbyists that tell Congress they don't want to be regulated. Dr. Tara Narula, thank you so much. Lights out. What has sparked more than 80% of power outages in recent years? Stay with us. In our Earth Matters series, extreme weather as a result of the climate crisis has caused a massive jump in power outages, according to a new study. From 2011 to 2021, there was a 78% jolt in weather-related outages compared with the previous decade. And loss of power, of course, can have deadly consequences. Texas officials estimate that over 100 people died during the February 2021 cold snap that resulted in a power grid failure, mostly because of people freezing to death. Let's bring in CNN's Renee Marsh. Renee, what uh, what other states are affected by this massive uptick in power outages? Well, Jake, I I can tell you that a large swath of the United States has experienced these weather-related power outages. I want to show you this map here because of all of the states um, highlighted in orange, Texas saw the most of these outages, followed by Michigan and California. And just take Texas, for example, this summer, a heat wave knocked six natural gas power plants offline there. And so, Jake, as we continue to see these weather events, these extreme weather events, uh, these outages, sadly, are going to become more common because the grid was just not built to withstand these long stretches of things like heat waves that we have been seeing, Jake. And, and what, are, what are states doing to try to mitigate these power outages? Because obviously this is becoming more of a problem. Weather is becoming even more severe. Yeah, I mean, sticking with the Texas example, I mean, during these heat waves, um, some of these state grid operators are asking people simply to use less electricity. We saw that in uh, Texas this year. This summer, they asked people to keep their thermostats at 78 degrees or higher during that heat wave and avoid using large appliances that suck a lot of power at peak hours. In other states, Jake, they are using the mechanism of rolling blackouts where they're essentially triggering blackouts so that they can better manage the grid when supply and demand fall out of balance. But really, a lot of these are reactionary measures. Uh, I spoke to many energy experts who say, look, we need more energy sources, which include renewable energy. And also, when you speak about the grid operators, they have a role to play here, too. In many cases, they are using historical weather 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 data in order to essentially decide what their investments would be for the future and for the grid. The problem is that's a major mistake, Jake, when you talk about um, planning for the future when you have climate change and these sort of unpredicted weather events that are slamming uh, these states summer uh, after summer. Yeah, obviously um, winter's right around the corner. Um, Are there any steps that can be taken in the next few months to try to try to prevent this from happening again, these power outages? Yeah, I mean, and we also, you mentioned off at the top in Texas, uh, that that ice storm, that caused an issue as well. as It was quite deadly. Uh, and, and the problem with these 
power outages is that when they are happening for an extended period of time, we now become an issue of not just it being an inconvenience, uh, but it being an issue of life and death and other health consequences. Uh, I would expect to see that, you know, again, the most that states can do is essentially asking people to conserve until we build a much more resilient power grid. All right, Renee Marsh, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Sticking with our Earth Matters series, the founder of Patagonia is giving away his company to fight the climate crisis. The outdoor apparel and equipment company will now be split into two with most of the profits going to a nonprofit focused on protecting nature and biodiversity and fighting environmental issues. The rest of Patagonia's stock will fund a trust to ensure the company can never deviate from this new plan. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead Scene. And if you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts. All two hours sitting there like a big pumpkin. Our coverage now continues with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in a place called The Situation Room. See you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.